This is Straight Talk in the COVID Economy, and my name is Larry Quick. Our world has changed and there's no going back. The COVID economy is now very real. We are adapting to telework, Zooming, online learning and new industries like PanSafe and other opportunities revealed by COVID-19. The challenges are also with us. Bankruptcies, unemployment, debt and confusion. In Straight Talk in the COVID economy, we meet thinkers and innovators who bring insight and information into the opportunities and risks of our rapidly emerging COVID economy. Straight Talk in the COVID Economy is brought to you by Resilient Futures. This is alongside our partner, Impact Africa Network. Impact Africa Network is an innovation incubator based in Nairobi, Kenya. It seeks to be a catalyst for the next Silicon Valley in Africa. Impact Africa Network needs all the support we can provide. So please donate at www.impactafrica.network. Hi and welcome everybody. Um, I'd like to introduce my good colleague and friend, uh, Michael Schumann. Michael's an economist, uh, attorney, and author and entrepreneur. What a mix that is. And I've found him to be, and he's stated to be, a leading visionary in community economics. Now that is a whole area in itself that I find intriguing because you know economists are usually are these grand scale um, in my view, unpractical uh, understandings of how uh, life really works. Uh, having worked with Michael in Australia, um, I've found him to be so practical and on the ground and revealing in some of the things that uh, he, he has found and talks about as a community economist. Um, he's Director of Local Economy Programs from Neighbourhood Associations Corporation and an adjunct professor at Bard Business School in New York City and a senior research council, uh, researcher for Council Fire and Local Analytics, where he uh, performed economic development analysis to states, local governments and businesses around North America. So hi, Michael. Nice to be with you, Larry. Great to be with you, mate. And I'm so much looking forward to um, talking to you, but not only that, but getting back in touch. Uh, we worked back in, I think it was 2012, was it? Um, um, it was somewhere around there. I was I was trying to remember that. It may have even been as late as fourteen or fifteen. Could have been, but I know that we had you up in Wood End, our little village up here, and we tried so hard to get some things happening. But so often, what we find uh, different to our work uh, from Resilient Futures perspective in the U.S., where we primarily worked in disenfranchised communities, there that we don't have um, a lot of that. Um, apart from Aboriginal communities, which are very disenfranchised, we don't have a lot of that work happening in, um, in Australia uh, or that, a lot of that, those conditions. But I think this time has now changed. And in sort of setting the interview up with Michael, I, I was sort of revealing to him the, the work that we've done um, or doing in uh, understanding very rapidly emerging COVID economy uh, and beyond. And we see the COVID economy as... You know, there's been a big drop off in the old economy working and that which was already failing, uh, as we've seen that so many systems are collapsing under that um, and not least our, um, uh, our climate uh, systems with fires we're having, the floods, etc. Um, but also uh, economic systems really being um, uh, unequal, etc, etc. I can talk all day about that. But in the COVID economy, we're obviously seeing some... Um, some uh, risks that are emergent there. Unemployment is over the top. 
all sorts of things happening and some big issues that will arise, particularly in September, October um, of this year with, with debt, et cetera, et cetera. But the things that we've been talking to uh, Michael about uh, in the emergence of telework and working community. We're seeing a lot of that taking place, which actually fits so totally your model, Michael. Also, the idea of online learning and the, and the future of work, being able to locate that back into where you live rather than having to travel long distances uh, and go into socially distanced places which are no longer viable. Uh, micro-manufacturing and local supply networks, uh, community talent attraction and retention, all of these things now being available to local communities to start to really um, uh, look at how they can um, um, uh, be uh, uh, leveraged um, in a disruptive change for sustainable value generation. So I'm, I'm, I'm asked Michael today to talk about local dollars kept in local communities, uh, transfer of capital to where you work and live. And this is one of the things we tried to get to happen with Michael when he was here was how do we get local superannuation investment in local community development? Uh, so how do you get to invest in local communities uh, and how do we get develop community development corporations happening in Australia similar to the way they happen in the USA? So Michael, I'm just gonna th throw it open and start talking about local dollars in local communities. Right, well, uh, first I I'll, I'll just pile on with your analysis and say that uh, I do I do think that the COVID economy opens up a lot of interesting opportunities and and one of those opportunities is that people are more skeptical more nervous about public markets and more interested in moving if they can some of their life savings into uh, their main street, wherever they are. And the tools for doing that have become more available, more affordable and more sensible. Um, I just, so in the US, uh, I just published a book uh, called Put Your Money Where Your Life Is, uh, which is really, it, it's sort of a summation of where I think the local investment movement is in the United States. but. You know, to put this a little bit in perspective, um, in our country, investment crowdfunding was effectively legalized in 2016. Uh, and since then, 400,000 Americans have participated in investment crowdfunding. That is where they go online and they find small businesses they think are exciting and they invest in them. Um, sometimes it's loans, sometimes it's a stock investment, sometimes it's a royalty investment. Uh, and the, the typical company online has raised about $270,000. Uh, the average investor has put in $800. The biggest beneficiaries have been businesses run by women and people of color. That is those who are most neglected by the traditional capital markets, venture funds, hedge funds, banks, and so forth. So we know that grassroots crowdfunding is really beginning to fill a vital niche in the economy. The last time I was in Australia was a little more than a year ago. Um, and at that point, 
your crowdfunding in Australia had just been legalized and I uh, spent a little time with the people in Brisbane, the Food Connect people who uh, did do a successful crowdfunding raise uh, for uh, a facility, a warehouse facility for their local food distribution. And what I can tell you about that experience to me is, is very much true of the experience in the US and also I think true uh, universally. And so what, you know, what we found is that um, maybe half of the money for the Food Connect offering came from deep pocket angel-ish kinds of investors. And those investors were very interested in whether this investment was going to generate a 4% rate of return, a 5% rate of return. The rest of the investors were hundreds of mostly women who put in small dollar amount of investments, and they did not really care what the rate of return was. As long as it was a positive rate of return and people were going to get their money back, that's all they cared about. And I see that as a really important tool because what it's saying is that investment is only partially about your personal or private rate of return. Investment is also about your social rate of return, about what it does for your community. And I think, you know, the, the period of COVID is forcing all of us to rethink our relationship with our communities. In a way, it has made our communities more important and it has made our need, our desire, our the urgency really of putting our money into our local businesses more important. I'll tell you one thing that I did in the US is that I decided that I mean, here, we're, we're on the precipice of lo losing hundreds of thousands, if not millions of businesses. And I think it's very important for Americans to adopt at least one local business. Uh, hopefully, you might have the resources to adopt several. And so what I did, there's a, a really lovely restaurant, bookstore, bar near me that I know was struggling named Busboys and Poets. And I approached the owner, uh, an Iraqi American citizen named Andy Shalal. And I said, Andy, um, I estimate that over the next year, I'm going to spend uh, in a typical year $1,000 on meals at your, at your place. I'm going to give you the $1,000 right now. Uh, I'm lucky that I can afford to give you that $1,000 now. Uh, and I want you to just give me gift cards uh, to cover it. And I want you to have that money now so you can keep more employees on payroll. And he was so thrilled with that act of adoption that he gave me a 20% bonus. So I now have $1,200 to spend on meals there. And uh, one way of looking at this from a hard-headed investment standpoint is I got a 20% rate of return on my investment, which I challenge anyone in the conventional markets to say they've done. But I say to your listeners, think about all of the businesses you love. Think about businesses that may be in trouble as a result of 
some form of the shutdowns that have happened in recent months, reach out to them as I have. If you can't do an advanced purchase, maybe that business needs capital in the way of a loan or a stock investment and work with that business to maybe get them to do a crowdfunding offering. Um, now, there's another issue and that is how do you tap your superannuation funds? And, and the key uh, piece that I have written about in my most recent book is how Americans can do the equivalent uh, with what we call IRAs, um, individual retirement accounts, or uh, 401ks, which are workplace pension funds, and using what are called self-directed IRAs or solo 401ks, Americans can begin to localize some of their investments. Um, I am less familiar with the laws in Australia, although my good friend and colleague, Gilbert Roche-Coust, who runs the Village Well in Melbourne, I know, took money out of his pension fund pre-COVID to create a open workspace uh, underneath the house that he lives in. Uh, as a kind of in localized investment. So I know it can be done, but it's a little more complicated. Yeah, it's, um, it's amazing you say that because um, we've just had a situation with superannuation. Um, it, it's a, a damned if you do, damned if you don't. Or I think the way it stacks up is damned if you don't, because you don't get that um, forced saving, because ours is forced, uh, and it's not um, work-based. It's everyone who works gets a percentage, 10%, I think is at the moment, uh, going up to 12% of their salary or wages, automatically taken out and put into a superannuation fund, which you can choose, and you can't touch that. What's happened is that given that the COVID economy um, as uh, well, COVID-19 kicked off, uh, what was immediately injected into a COVID, back into a COVID economy was um, you could withdraw an amount of money from your superannuation uh, if you could uh, prove hardship. Um, and that has been, uh, it, it's been done by a lot of people. Some rorts have taken place. Uh, there's been some fraudulent activity, but by and large, that's, that's actually happened for immediate need. But um, I don't think we have actually understood what the mechanisms are for local um, investment. Um, and I, I, I can see we're starting to, to think that way, but at the scale of community development corporations, which are local, if you call them, I call them local organizers or local activists, um, that can get together and form a proper, um, uh, under, under law, uh, organization. There's a, um, they're, um, uh, um, they're not-for-profit, uh, apart from what they can develop in the community and give back to the community. So can you talk a bit about that, your experience with those uh, uh, organizations? Yeah, sure. So... Um... There, there, there's a kind of wide range of kinds of companies uh, that you can create in the United States uh, pretty easily, pretty inexpensively, nonprofits, co-ops, 
um, various forms of private corporation uh, with interesting different uh, ownership structures, um, public-private partnerships. So all of these things can be given, I think, an interesting social purpose. And, uh, you know, you introduced me partially by mentioning that I teach uh, for Bard Business School. And the, the course that I teach is called Sustaining Mission. And so I teach second-year business students how to uh, measure and keep up kind of social engagement with whatever business model they've chosen. So um, I tend to be a, um, a fan of all business models because I think all business models have some real potential for great social purpose uh, if the proprietors wish to do that. Now, community development corporations are, are interesting because they were created during the 1960s uh, when the then president, Lyndon Johnson, uh, had a declared war on poverty. And uh, he decided to make it easy for neighborhoods to create these sort of nonprofit vehicles. Um, but I've talked to some of the people um, who were involved in the creation of community development corporations and many of them regard the framework of CDCs, that's what we call them, uh, as nonprofits as a big mistake. Mm. Um, and that, that is that because they are nonprofit, they are forever in the position of trying to raise capital in awkward ways. Uh, so they have to beg for money from philanthropists. They have to constantly be writing grants to foundations. Uh, they maybe are applying for schemes that the government is offering. So in a way, they've become far too dependent on wealthy individuals rather than building their capital out of grassroots investment. And that's that's what some people think was the mistake. That so. I think that if Australians move ahead and create a specialized animal uh, to serve community development, I encourage you to keep a for-profit structure. But you know, when you can keep a for-profit structure and really make sure the profit is little or none and keep all the surplus going for the mission and people are clear that's what you're trying to do. Uh, one of the advantages in the United States of structuring things that way is uh, the laws that limit nonprofits. For example, they can't do lobbying. They can't do advocacy on legislation. But a for-profit corporation in the United States can do all those things. So in a way, your degrees of freedom may be a little bit broader if you take on a more conventional corporate structure but set up the governance and the ownership in ways that get, keep that social purpose. Have you seen any of that type of uh, innovation take place uh, at the community level uh, with B corporations? Yes, so um, for, for your listeners who may not be familiar, uh, B corporations uh, were, was a designation of company uh, that started with a 
nonprofit called B Lab in 2006. And the idea was to create a framework for evaluating the social performance of businesses on originally on four metrics and now it's on five. So on governance, community, workers, environment, and now customer responsiveness. And if you score high enough on these metrics, you have the privilege of using the B for beneficial insignia, like a good housekeeping seal, good a good community keeping seal. Um, and, and you also become part of a kind of global network of interesting socially minded companies. And at this moment, I believe the worldwide count on B Corps is somewhere north of 3000 of designated B Corps. So um, the way that it has played out in the United States is we also have a bunch of laws at the state level that allow companies that are interested in becoming B Corps, but maybe are, are at the beginning of their journey, they can reincorporate in something like 35 US states uh, as benefit corporations. And so they're still for profit, still sort of have the same ownership structure, but by being benefit corporations, they sort of change up their articles of incorporation and their bylaws and basically say, we're doing business, not just for our investment shareholders, but for a variety of stakeholders, the workers, the suppliers, the community, the environment and so forth and thereby inoculate themselves from shareholder actions of an old variety that could possibly say, why aren't you just paying attention to investors? So yeah, so there's, there's a couple of thousand benefit corporations in the United States. I, I sometimes think of them as B Corp light because you don't have to necessarily achieve a certain level of performance in order to become a benefit corporation, uh, but but at least you're on the pathway. Yeah, and I, I guess um, it's sort of, uh, uh, I, I don't think there's any sort of bell to be rung in America uh, about um, uh, the um, inequities in communities, whether that be minorities or even um, uh, the um, the people that have been disenfranchised through uh, economic change, global economic changes and globalization, if you like, uh, particularly um, uh, say, for instance, when we're in um, uh, Ohio a, a couple of years ago, seeing the ravaging nature of uh, the loss of jobs there through uh, just shifting global forces and even American forces. So that we don't have that immense pressure at the moment that is showing up in America and seeing sort of the breakdowns that are occurring there. Uh, from an Australian perspective, it is coming. I, I think the, um, uh, the winter of discontent in Australian communities is about to hit us uh, in ways we don't know, but there are so many opportunities there that can manage themselves against the risks. And if I could just take a little bit of time that traditional economics says, from, at least definitely from an Australian perspective, is that when you get a, a, a downturn, 
the way to go is invest in infrastructure. Construction jobs are what counts. We build large, we have very large shovel-ready projects, let's go with it. And I mean, that was the nature of GFC stimulus in the US when I was working there. And it, is, it tends to be happening here now. But the thing I say is, well, if the square metre economy is under attack, and if we were to say, give it a number, 40 to 50% of workers are now going to be not travelling, they're going to be in community, where should those construction um, those infrastructure projects happen. If you're building freeways to densified areas, what's the point of that? Or if you're building big buildings, what's the point of that? If you're building the same buildings that can't be used now, what's the point of that? So um, what the, the, the level of investment that could then take place in localised communities in building, you know, community hubs or telework industry, you know, investing in the telework industry, supporting that, as massive amount of support that needs. You know, you need um, um, ergonomics, you need, you need people who haven't got the right space, who haven't got the national broadband network working, all of those sorts of things. Uh, online learning going into local structures. Um, as we've talked about, micro-manufacturing and new supply um, networks um, and the amount of shift that we can have outside of these fully densified areas in cities. Um, and I, I think that type of investment is at least a, a good proportion of any stimulus done is a, is a good thing to do. So what are your thoughts on if there is going to be stimulus, where should it be put? Yeah, well, absolutely. Uh, I, I agree with you about the shifts that are going on in the economy. And I, I would even go further and say that there is a fundamental shift in the goal of economics and economic development. Um, for 200 years, we have kind of followed the, the thinking of David Ricardo, um, who was the author of the theory of comparative advantage. And Ricardo argued, and this is a bit of a simplification, but basically argued that every country, every state, every jurisdiction should find a couple of things that they are really great at producing, uh, world-class goods and services, as they've come to be known in the nomenclature of economic developers, and import everything else. Um, and it's fair to say, I think, that, that uh, jurisdictions worldwide have embraced this idea of economic development. Now we know, I think, in the COVID world how insane this is, because the more dependent your economy is on a few production nodes and lots of imports, the more vulnerable you are to COVID, to sudden cutoffs in supplies, uh, to an oil cutoff, to a food shortage. So I, I argue now that the most competitive communities are going to be the most self-reliant. Uh, the most self-reliant on basic goods and services. And I think because of that, there is an emerging comparative advantage to a lot of once forgotten smaller communities. Because smaller communities have people living in them and it's now become obvious that gee 
we should not be driving 20, 50, 100 kilometers out. We should be providing goods and services for our own people. And, and frankly, even small places um, can competitively provide many critical goods and services, uh, food, energy, water, uh, basic, basic housing at a small scale. And so that's really what's going on now. The cutting edge is the reinvention of economies at a smaller scale. And I think that's just consistent with what you said about don't throw your money at unnecessary infrastructure in places that are going to be obsolete. So, you know, what I, when I am talking now with communities about how you should rethink economic development, I think that there are a lot of things that cities can do uh, in the name of better economic development that either costs nothing or actually save them money. So I'm going to give you three examples. Uh, first of all, a city should stop wasting money on attracting outside companies, which is largely what economic development has become all about. Uh, if you stop wasting that money, you've got more money available for other forms of economic development that we know are cheaper and more effective. Number two, change your procurement system, your public procurement system, so that you actually take into account all of the advantages that come from local procurement. And, and here's what's kind of weird about public procurement right now is that they pretend that they're going after the lowest bidder, but they can't pay attention or they don't pay attention to what happens to the tax dollars that may come back to that jurisdiction. And if you spend your money locally as a public authority, your tax returns are gonna be greater. So if you take those tax returns into account, you will have a lower expenditure for the same goods and services, you will have more local spending, and you will have a stronger economy. So that's really a very simple form of stimulus. And number three is really thinking about uh, the local investment pieces we just talked about. And I think it's worth saying that local investment, uh, I think we're all starting to appreciate, is not just investment in local businesses. It can be investment in municipal projects that are led by your city. If the city can figure out how to issue securities that are purchasable by people living in the community for say, you know, solar, so, so solar energy production or stormwater management or affordable housing, really bad features of COVID is that tens of millions of people uh, are going to emerge out of this pandemic with a weaker personal finance position. They will be deeper in debt. Many will owe, you know, billions more, trillions more in credit card debt. So one of the arguments I'm making now is that we should prioritize with friends and neighbors helping to pull them out of debt. And I, I know the numbers are a little bit different in Australia, but just to put this in perspective in the United States, 
the average credit card holder in the United States pays 17% per year uh, on interest. And that number can easily go up to 25 or 25% or 30% if you uh, have a penalty, a mispayment. So let's just call it 20%. If I, every dollar that I spend on someone getting out of a credit card debt in theory has a 20% rate of return. So I could split that with someone so that maybe they pay me 5% and they're enjoying 15% from that transaction. It's not just credit card debt, it's student loan debt, it's mortgage debt, uh, it might be debt around uh, building greenhouses in your house or making your house more energy efficient. So I think we can be very creative about rebuilding our communities and financing it with one another. Now, again, I am deeply appreciative that we have to develop some good tools for you folks to access your superannuation funds. And I'm going to get on it soon, I promise. <laughs> well, I'm looking forward to that, mate, <clears throat> because uh, um, I, I think the... Um, now, what we're looking at, and I think it's similar in most places, that uh, the um, the um, the winter that you're going to experience, or the fall you're going to come into, that uh, leads to winter, we're going to be coming into the spring, which leads to our summer, and uh, the uh, the that debt that you're talking about, and the amount of bankruptcies and the organisations or little businesses and big businesses that are already insolvent. That comes home uh, in sometime September, October, August, September, October. Um, the reality of that, you know, the debt, the sovereign and domestic debt that at least Australia's had and many countries have up to 2019, which was unsustainable. Um, that is sort of still with us. Um, the, um, the, GFC has, has been stated to me, the global financial crisis, which we call the GFC, uh, is not over, hasn't been over since it happened. We just don't trade in CDOs anymore, collateralized debt obligations. We now have traded in CLOs, collateralized loan obligations, which are about to come home because the way they've been structured to be AAA, AA, etc. Uh, is based on correlation modeling, where no one, ex if you have a bundle of CLOs together um, that have, you know, which are all stressed business loans, have, you know, very high margins, 25%, et cetera, they've all been bundled up and securitized, as same as CDOs. You've got the, um, uh, those distressed businesses have been mixed up so that the correlation aspect modeling said that they couldn't all go bust at the same time because it doesn't, just doesn't happen. Now, uh, you know, you get one in one industry, in retail, in one bundle of CLOs to a... a you, um, to use a the nuclear power analogy, we're now facing a common mode failure. Yes. Which means where all those correlation models are totally obsolete because Absolutely. one unexpected event clobbered everything. Yeah. So that is coming to bear. Um, 
there was an interesting uh, thing I hadn't looked at at Brookings Institute. Uh, it was late at night and I've been looking for the webinar, but on uh, Dodd-Frank uh, actually talking about what the, they saw the outcome um, of the, the lack of implementation really or enforcement of Dodd-Frank. Um, Mnuchin, Treasury Secretary, comes out and says the banks aren't exposed to CLOs, which is wrong, they are, uh, throughout the world. And I just wonder, the second GFC is upon us in some shape or form. What is your immediate reaction to that comment? I, I totally agree with you. And I can't say with confidence what's going to take the global economy apart, but here's, here's the way that I look at it in terms of its vulnerability. Um, so again, I'm going to use U.S. numbers, but, but they're not far, the, in, in terms of a big sense of things, it's, it's very similar uh, to Australia. Um, when you look at the long-term savings that Americans have, uh, in stocks, bonds, mutual funds, pension funds, and insurance funds, uh, they total $56 trillion. That $56 trillion is about 100% invested in global corporate stocks and bonds. Yep. Now, what's perverse about that is that 60 to 80% of our economy is locally owned business, depending on how you define local. So in a effective capital market, and I, you know, we could talk about that these local businesses, at least in normal times, are profitable and competitive. Yep. In, an, in a competent and effective capital market, 60 to 80% of those long-term savings would be going into local business, but none are. What that really means is that there's been a huge subsidization, a huge subsidization of global companies where everyone is putting too much into global companies and nothing into effective local businesses. And I would argue that has been an enormous drag on the economy. So even without COVID, this thing was going to unravel at some point. And, and I feel like the shift from what we would say Wall Street to Main Street is gonna happen anyway. Uh, and that will reduce the subsidy to global business and increase the prosperity of communities. The COVID crisis, I think, is just gonna precipitate this happening faster with a lot more people being hurt along the way. But I think this process, you know, could be managed. It could be a good thing. And that's why I, I encourage people who are listening to you to get out ahead of it and start to localize their finances as much as they can now. Words to my ears. <laughs> yeah, uh, I, I, I totally agree with that. And I think one of the things that we have to do is rapidly decide as part of a COVID economy is to how we do that in Australia. And in saying that, I'm hoping that we can do some work on that together. Um, and we only need to find a way of doing that. Michael, 
as always, I could talk to you for hours. We've both got a hard start, stop at the same time. But I want to thank you so much. And can this be the first of many interviews we do into the future? And I would love to do that. Let's, yeah. get, let's get a project happening in Australia <laughs> around, uh, and we can get a panel of, of people to work on that project to make it work um, ahead of time as part of our view of the COVID economy. Uh, we're launching the website today, um, the new uh, Resilient Futures website. Our publications out, first publication, Intrepid uh, Information Accounts, which is this is part of that. And also our COVID economy papers are starting to come out in July as well. So I want to thank Michael Schumann, as always, the man who thinks differently about everything that m most economists think and can bring it so succinctly back into what it means for local communities. And I hope Australian ears are now really open to your ideas. And if I could also then put a very big um, plug into my, all of Michael's book, you know, put your money where your life is, how to invest locally, um, the, um, uh, all of them. Just Google michaelsherman.com and you'll find them all there and you can buy them off um, online. So thanks once again, Michael, and appreciate it. See you soon. Thank you, Larry. Take care. Thank you. We hope you've enjoyed this Straight Talk in the COVID Economy podcast. Thank you for listening. And please subscribe on your preferred podcast platform. Also, please let us know your thoughts by leaving a rating and review. For more information about Resilient Futures, please visit www.resilientfutures.com and please support our partner, Impact Africa Network at www.impactafrica.network. We need all the support we can to help them build their own incubator. We know that there are many other great podcasts out there and your time is precious and you chose to listen to this great talk in the COVID economy. And we appreciate that. Thank you.